This podcast is offered by the San Francisco Zen Center on the web at www.sfcc.org. Our public programs are made possible by donations from people like you. Good morning. Good morning. Oh, and permanence. Okay. And I'm literally in the midst of it. Uh, and. Uh, the stand also feels very impermanent, um, and I'm going to adapt as best I can. It's good to see everyone. Happy 2024. Um, let's start out by uh, just saying happy to each other. All right, do that. Just feel free. Say hi to everyone. Reverend to you, William Shutt. Uh, I want to thank um, the City Center Abbot, Marco, and Tonto, Tim, for the invitation to speak today. And of course, to thank Senior Dharma Teacher Paul Howler and Central Abbot David Zimmerman um, for being here. And sorry, this thing is a little hard for me. Um, I'm going to focus now. Uh, and of course, I thank Vicki Austin, my teacher, um, and then uh, Gail Fronstall also. And of course, though she's here uh, in, in spirit, in fact, uh, when I was told I was going to sit in the studio seat and it was. Uh, Expression seat, of course, I thought Paul, uh, and Paul seat, I thought Blanche, because I'm used to Blanche being here. <laughs> and uh, so, um, and then to have this like very high platform, I feel like uh, in, in the uh, Theravon tradition, you're not supposed to be in a high bed. And I, when I was told I was stepping up on here, I just feel like, wow, really. <laughs> A little uncomfortable for me, so sorry. Let me adjust here in so many ways. All right. Um, I really appreciate being the first one to give a talk here at City Center and um, in, in 2024 and with this new layout and all. And um, in some ways, then, um, it's about, I would say, right or skillful view which is the first of the April path, of course. And um, I think it's kind of a New Year's thing, too, to kind of start going, oh, what, what is, what is it that I want this year to be? How do I set my view, wouldn't you say, on how I'm going to do this year? Do people still do resolutions and thinking about anyone? Okay, right. All right. And... Um, I am going to be talking from my book, which came out uh, in August, and thank you for the invitation to talk about it. It's called Home is Here, Practicing Anti-Racism with the Engaged Eightfold Path. Um, so I'm going to start with the introduction here. I will say the book starts, and I'll say here also, with a content warning. 
and I will be saying some slurs. Um, this is not an invitation to um, use slurs yourself, even in, if it's referring to you, just because it tends to be maybe uh, activating for people. However, it goes with the fog, and so I will be saying it in this context. So the introduction, the wholeness of life. Location, location, location. Where are you from? No, no, really. Where are you from? Hey, Chink, go home. People like you shouldn't live in this neighborhood. I was in your country and saved your people. Why do you act like a white girl? You're a Twinkie, aren't you? If you don't know what a Twinkie is, raise your hand if you want me to explain. Okay, a Twinkie is a derogatory word for someone who is perceived to be Asian or yellow on the outside and white on the inside. A banana is another derogatory term. Buddhism came to America some 49 or 50 years ago. Don't you know this is the women's restroom? Fucking lesbian. In each moment, we are located by lineage and ancestry, by others, by ourselves, by sight, by perception, by differentiation, by discrimination, by institutions, by policies, by governmental structures, by systems of oppressions, by homophobia, by sexism, by genderphobia, by white supremacy culture, by racism, by erasure, by invisibilization, by exclusion, by inclusion, by equity, by love, with hatred, with fear, with anxiety, with love, with care, with tenderness, with joy. In isolation, in community, in belonging, in the world, in time, in space, in emptiness, in wholeness. As a Vietnamese American adoptee, 1.5 generation, immigrant, cisgender female, gender nonconforming, lesbian, Soto Zen priest, in the late mid-years of a chronological life, I'm often located by others, as I don't always present or behave in ways people believe my social locations to be. For instance, I'm often asked as I enter a washroom, don't you know this is the women's restroom? Perhaps it could be because of my shaved head due to being a priest, but likely, it's also because I have been non-conforming in the ways I've carried myself for most of my life, in gender 
and other socially prescribed manners. When I was in Vietnam in 2002 and traveling with Vietnamese and Vietnamese American friends, they would often ask me to stay in the van as they went in to negotiate the lodging price. This was due to the unofficial but commonly used tier pricing scheme. Lowest for current Vietnamese nationals, next level for Vietnamese and diaspora, and most expensive for foreigners. According to my friends, while my ethnic identity was visually apparent, the way I held myself was American. They felt that I exuded too much confidence and took up too much space compared to a typical Vietnamese female. For most of my life, I have had to be hyper aware of my social locations wherever I am especially of locations imputed on me by systems of oppression. By location, I mean a framing for how an individual is designated a position in specific systems, and with it, the assumptions and privileges, or lack of them, that come with it. This framing of locationality allows for an understanding then an identity always comes with embedded social power that can change depending on which system is operating in each moment of interaction with another, interpersonally and in structures. For instance, as an able-bodied Vietnamese-American, I'm located in the down power position or location of less privilege within the system of white supremacy. Yet I am in the up power, or more privilege, location in ableism. Understanding one's location is important because depending on the embedded lack of or privilege of power, one's responsibility changes. I've tried to grasp solidly onto some of these locations at times, trying hard to be American or Vietnamese, for others and for myself. At other times, I've tried rejecting locations, especially those computed on me by others and by systems. I've done both in many ways, individually and with others, through academic studies, art, therapy, volunteerism, activism, and work as a social worker. Then finally, when my suffering couldn't be processed thoroughly through those means, I leaned into my Buddhist practice. At first, it was out of utter confusion. After my graduate studies, I went back to Vietnam for the first time after 28 years. I thought I was going home. But after five months, I realized that the home I envisioned was simply that a vision carried from my past and my childhood. This threw me for a loop, and I came back to the United States utterly shaken. Who am I? Where do I belong? I had been practicing lay Buddhism for almost six years by then. With this shattering of old ideas about myself, I then decided to go to a monastery in Northern California to do some intensive meditation, chanting, 
and other Buddhist practices. Initially, my aim was a three-month intensive retreat, and I ended up staying there for three and a half years and ordaining as a priest in the Soto Zen tradition. Fast forward to more than two decades later, and with the years of practice and being a Buddhist and meditation teacher, I've developed a more complete sense of how to hold my experiences of social locations in ways that are more grounding yet responsive, fostering healing and restoration. So that's the beginning of the book, and I wanted to really talk about location. Um, I think when I am from this view, I'm obviously in the literal up power position, very up power right now, and you all are lowlies. Uh, on, online, maybe you're more directly, I don't know. But everything shifts, right? Depending on how we interact, even though I'm literally higher than Paul, obviously being senior Dharma teacher, Paul has more power um, in the temple and also in social locations in the United States, right? So how we're located depends not just on our literal space, but who we turn to interact with. Now, um, yes, I did ask you to say hi to everyone, and that was also on purpose. So actually close your eyes for a minute and think back to when I asked you to say hi to people. What, think about what was some of the drive or the motivation or the impetus for who you turn to, how you address people, what is the energetic sense, what are the motivations, even think about what might have been some unconscious sense. All right, go ahead and open your eyes when you're ready. Anybody want to say, share anything that came up for them about how you chose who to say hi to or didn't say hi to? Sure, tell us your name. Hey, Co. Uh -huh. I chose to say hi to everybody I could see. Uh -huh. Okay. And would we say being in the Zen form, in the Zen no, literally, you didn't get up to go say hi to anybody? No, I did not. Yeah, so that's kind of like a, you know, a form here. I mean, most people would think to get up. I almost said, feel free to get up, but then I thought that might be more chaos here. Uh -huh. Anyone else want to share? Yes, that was your name. Bushan. yes. For me, I think it was just proximity. Proximity. Uh -huh. Okay, now think back. Who did we decide to sit next to, or where did we want to sit? And by that, I don't mean just who, right? But also, perhaps, like, I'm a little, actually a little bit hard of hearing, so I sit close, but then also as a Vietnamese American, often I don't like to sit up front, right? And so I sit back even though I have a sense of 
I need to move forward to be more visible, but it's, I have to fight these kind of conditions. And so we're taught how to locate ourselves all the time, and we're doing it all the time. And certain of us, um, be, depending on how much instruction you were given, explicitly or implicitly, depending on the various social locations that you've grown up to, have more and more messages about how we should comport ourselves, right? And that's a part of what we're taught, our conditioning. And then, you know, some of it's perfectly fine. The issue is, are we aware of that? And then from that, how do we want to respond? How much of it is old and unconscious? And are we willing to examine that and then bring more consciousness to? Now, one way to also talk about saying hi, really, or the exercise of saying hi, is that um, there's a, for the Zen people in the room, you already probably know that there's a teaching for the Avatam Saka Sutra on the Indra's net. Right? So it's described often as the universe is a net, and at each section in which the strands cross, there's a jewel. So at the nodes, there are jewels. And because of the nature of jewels, the way they're cut, they're faceted, they reflect. And so at each node, there's a jewel, and so each jewel reflects the, all the other jewels. Sounds lovely, right? And it is about our interconnectedness, how we reflect each other, impact each other. And it's a lovely image. Now, sometimes that's used, I think, to have the sense that, oh, all the jewels should be the same. That equality is that we all should somehow be the same. Wouldn't you say? Maybe it's just me. Now, I want to really bring in that the oneness, when we want to talk about oneness of practice, that it's the strands, it's the net itself, is where we need to pay more attention, not just on the individual jewels. The jewels are part of the net, so yes, we want to pay attention to the jewels. And, and depending on if your part of the net has more torn, or have not historically been taking care of the strands so that they, they're broken or that they're weak, then perhaps more attention needs to be put on attending to the jewels in that area. How do we build the net again? How do we fix, you know, when you look at cobwebs, especially those that seem like they are not attended to or sections of it, you know, you see a spider Right? When there's a, besides going to get the, the bug that they're going to eat, they're there repairing the nets. And so we want to think about, hmm, where is it that I don't pay enough attention to the net? If we're talking about oneness, am I just interested in the net around me or where I can go? Right? And yet, the net, if we think of, if we turn our view to not just be on 
but jewels only become stewards of the net. That the net becomes the thing that is more important, right? One way to talk about the net is this, what is the connection between us? How are those connections made? So, as I was writing this book, and really this book arose out of um, a call from students, I like to say this book is not, did not start out as a book, it started out as a response. So, in, two, in 2020, at the beginning of the pandemic, um, a lot of Asian American students called me up and said, hey, I need help, all this animus and violence against Asian Americans is really distressing. I'm afraid to leave my home. How can you support me? And so I actually have been developing these since um, 2017. Um, I was at Generation X teacher conference that several other people in the room were at. And um, it was right after yet another round of sexual misconduct in convert centers. And so um, the right use of power is brought in as a restoration model. And I love the right use of power, and I know we've done it here. And, um, and then I thought, wow, I've been to a lot of trainings in my priest career, and some other models always being brought in, nonviolent communication, and I love them all, really I do. And yet, there must be something in the teachings themselves. That's where I go when I have trouble. So, um, I thought about it, and with the support of the Amira Foundation and the Buddhist Foundation, I've been developing the Four Noble Truths to be what I call the engaged version as a restorative model. So in that restorative model, we start out by saying harm and harming has happened. Not just that there's suffering in life. Because to restore anything, we have to acknowledge that there's been brokenness, that the values that we say that we uphold, the view that we say, oh, there's equality, there's equity, that we, when we hold these views and values, and when they're broken, we have to agree on that. So much of the conflict in the world arises out of disagreement about what is it that needs attending to or is broken and needs to be fixed, wouldn't you say? And so it's really important that the, the beginning of restoration is to acknowledge what is. So as I was doing these, I would say there are three what I call essential aspects to restoration. One is this, acknowledging what is, which, by the way, echoes the personal truth, right? Harm and harming has happened, we have to acknowledge it, and then, knowing what shifts are especially needed and learning how to put those shifts into practice. And then the last, those are two and three, by the way. So, let's talk about knowing what shifts are especially needed. Which I will go to chapter one and just read you briefly. Okay, engage for noble truths. We are complete and whole. By the way, Tim, I have no clock, so can you 
Or someone can give me a time check. 1040. 1040, thank you. The ring of a bell signaled it was my turn for Dokusan, an interview to discuss my practice with the Soto Zen master at this 500-year-old training monastery in Japan. I picked up a small mallet and struck the cast iron bell in front of me, one time, letting it ring. Then a second time, I rose and hurried down a long hall to Tommy mats, the woven straw flooring in traditional Japanese living spaces, passing through the ihayo, a narrow room lined on both sides with rows of individual altars for deceased Sangha community members. They silently witness the swish of cloth as my long black priest robes rub back and forth around my ankles with each quick step. At the end of the hall, three steps rose up. I stop at the bottom and perform a short gusha, bound with palms touching and elbows out. Then in one swift motion, I grab the end of my zagu, or priest bowing cloth, laid it down on the tatami, and folded it into a square. I dropped down and started my full prostrations as quickly as possible, body crouched in child's pose, both hands outstretched and palms placed on the floor. Then, with symmetrical precision, hands raised past the ears and down again before rising to stand. I did this three times quickly, as is the custom, after which I refolded and slid the zagu back over my left wrist. One more quick gusho, and then I headed up those three stairs to my dokusan with Sake Harada Roshi, the abbot of Ho Shinji Monastery in Obama, Japan. I entered the room ready to ask the central question of my life. I come to Japan after leaving the predominantly white convert Soto Zen Buddhist Monastery in Central California, where I thought I would spend the rest of my life. When I had asked to be ordained more than eight years, excuse me, after more than eight years of meditative Buddhist practice, I felt a deep calling to live as a Buddhist monastic. But this, but this did not come to me. I left the California monastery after three and a half years there, heartbroken and confused about the racism I had experienced on both a personal and structural level. The persistent white supremacy culture of the monastery made it unsafe and did not support me as a Vietnamese American practitioner. This was true for many other people of color staying there as well. The experience was a huge shock to my understanding of Buddhism, Buddhist practice, and my sense of place in the world. As I made plans to leave that California monastery, and figure out how to practice as a newly ordained priest, I was contacted by someone who studied under Sake Harada Roshi in Japan. They urged me to study with him as he was acknowledged as an enlightened Zen master. I only practiced Soto Zen in predominantly white convert settings in the United States, and I felt drawn to the practice in Japan, the birthplace of this sect, Buddhism. 
I'd been at Ho Shinji for three weeks, trying to process my despair from having to leave California. There was another American at the monastery, a white woman. Instead of being someone I could connect with, she had harassed me, saying things like, you're good for nothing, you're trash. And the way I thought about it, and I didn't put it, but I'll tell you, she also said, you should die. And hissed whispers as we moved about the various ceremonies and tasks of the temple. I couldn't get away from her either. We were housed in the same nun's quarter together. We had come to Hu Shinji around the same time, so we had similar seniority, and we were the same height, so we were often paired together for ceremonies. Her hateful whispers seemed to follow me all over the temple. The racism I had experienced in California had followed me all the way to Japan. Entering the room for Dokusan, with Sake Habara. I barely sat down before blurting out the quintessential question of my existence up to that moment. Why does hatred seem to follow me wherever I go? I asked. Sake Harada didn't hesitate. No hatred completely. K-N-O-W, by the way. No hatred completely. He answered. Then he grabbed the handbell to his right and rang it vigorously, signaling the end of my interview. I scrambled out of the room, doing the prostrations and vows in reverse order. My mind raced to make meaning of what had just happened. Nothing came. My mind had stopped. A koan in Zen practice is a story assigned by a teacher for you to work with. Various traditions have different ways of practicing with koans, but giving an answer to the teacher as part of the process is a commonality across sects. Now, excuse me, how the teacher accepts or rejects the answer is part of the mythology of this practice. Well-known koan is, at this very moment, what is your original face before your parents were born? Many people think koans are paradoxes, but really they're stories to stop your mind, to bump it off its loop of incessant and well-worn patterns of thinking, planning, and processing. Koans open us to an understanding that's beyond habitual thinking, Life also gives us koans. For me, racism has been a koan I've turned over and over. Studying race theory was one of my answers to this koan. Other answers from my life have included activism, and various work as a social worker focused on addressing the harmful results of racism. All these were good answers. In Zen, we like to say, the question is more important than the answer. Why? Because questions often come up at uncomfortable moments. Deep questions arise 
when we're faced with circumstances in which our coping mechanisms aren't working anymore. At such moments, transformational change is possible if we stay open to all answers, especially unexpected ones. The system of white supremacy centers whiteness, fragmenting us all into the delusion of separateness. Aware of this dynamic and its harm to people of color, I had to be careful not to simply search outside of myself for answers. Like many Asian Americans and other people of color, at some point I had to learn to value myself, reclaiming the validity of my own experience in any moment and in any condition. Buddhist practice over many years has supported me to return to knowing and trusting my wholeness. No hatred completely. That moment with Roshi stopped my mind from its habitual looping to try to understand racism. All my intellectual theories and years of anti-racist work didn't address my suffering in a useful way at this crucial point of my life. That moment stopped my frantic search to find some reason why hatred kept following me. We already know, right? Systems of oppression set it up. I already knew that from all my race theory and studies. What I needed was to attend to the hurt and harm from being the target of racism. In Buddhism, we practice to be able to find settledness and clarity that's not dependent on the conditions of the world. To find such settledness and clarity, we have to attend to our suffering in body, heart, and mind. The koan of racism was not just something I wanted to understand. What I really want, even now, is to heal from the hurt and pain I carry. So the reason that I really developed the Engage Four Noble Truths, you know, in Zen we don't talk about the Four Noble Truths. I mean, of course it's implicit in all Buddhist teaching. But we don't specifically talk about it. And technically, the Eightfold Path is considered a Theravada teaching on how to be uh, an Arahat, right? A person who is enlightened develops the Eightfold Path. In Zen, we focus much more on the six paramitas as the behavior of a Bodhisattva. And so that's partly why we don't hear the specificity. However, to me, the, the Eightfold Path, just the fourth of the Four Noble Truths, by the way, the engaged Four Noble Truths is hurt and harm has happened. Understanding, the second is, how do we fully understand the causes and conditions for the rising of harm and harming, hurt and harm? And it's so similar to the classic Second Noble Truth. However, we focus much more on the systemic Right. We're still doing personal work to overcome racialization, 
but we focus on how we're not just, it's not like a self thing only, you know, it's not only for me to overcome what, what are the impacts of racism or other oppressions have been on me. It's to understand that whole systems, right, are responsible for how I've conditioned, and therefore systems need to shift so that the healing is not just an individual healing, but a societal healing, right? And those are important. And then the third is, you know, I like to say the good news of Buddhism, right? Um, is that there's agency. Where's the possibility to know that we have agency in the midst of hurt and harm? Possibly, of course, is the alleviation or the end of suffering. And then the last is the, the eightfold path. Now, knowing those shifts, I think, the, the really, I think, elegantness of the Eightfold Path is that um, it really lays out for us what it is um, that we can work on. And so, as I said, um, I've laid it out as acknowledging what is, which is to as the book is laid out in these three ways, the first part is seeing the world as it is. So how do we have a view of the world? The, and then also, um, how concentration, the practice, the meditative fact, practice of concentration really helps us to settle. The Eightfold Path, well, there are eight of them are broken into three sections, right? One is called the wisdom section, which is skillful view, which is to understand the four noble truths and karma. Recently, I was thinking karma, karma, of course, broadly is cause and effect, and it's very complicated, all in all. But one way to think about karma is that it's habitual tendency, right? or habitual motivation, or unconscious energy, the way in which things are we are conditioned and we act in certain ways and we behave in certain ways and we speak in certain ways. We, we are conditioned, and not all conditioning is bad, by the way, right? So much of the form in the zendo, you know, you think is just like bowing to, to the seat and then we all turn right, right? It, it's, we're being conditioned, but it's in a way to help us all move together as one body. You know, then you don't bump into somebody, and then you have to say, oh, sorry, sorry, and then you break the silence of the zendo, right? And so you break everyone else's concentration. So just because things are conditioned and we're taught forms doesn't make it bad. The idea is, are we conscious of how we're conditioned, and are they useful now? Right? They might not be useful then. In fact, in racism, so many of our parents taught us ways of dealing with the impact of racism. Right? You've heard about how, in particular, black children, black male children, really are sat down by their parents to talk about how they have to be very careful how they hold themselves, how they talk to certain people, especially cops, <laughs> uh, in certain areas, very specifically, of course, the white people. You know, when I was in Vietnam, um, my mother would teach me how to move out of the way when a GI was coming our way, right? So we're taught these things, and the idea is that it's for our safety, 
Our parents often taught us things for our safety. And of course it can go the other way around, you know, if you're taught that certain people of color are unsafe, and so you shouldn't interact with them. Right? And so the issue is how do we examine how we've been conditioned and are they useful for us anymore? Is there safety issues in the moment that we have to be attended to? At times, it certainly is true. And for some of us, you know, more than others. So it's not in itself a bad thing. But the key is, is it useful now? Is it true in this moment, in each moment that you are at? So we want to work on that. And then the second is, when we shift to learning what shifts are needed, right? We want to go to what the world needs now, or to this book. Skillful motivation, which is actually thinking, skillful thinking. And in Buddhism, thinking is not passive. This is why the more popular translation of Sankhapa these days is um, intention, you've heard of probably. I like motivation. Um, and motivation, because to me, motivation does give you the sense that there's um, you think it, and then you're motivated to move, right? To do, to speak. And so it goes actually into the second third, which is what's usually called the ethical conduct section. I like to call it the compassionate conduct section, which is skillful speech, skillful action, and skillful livelihood. This is the interactive part, right? How we speak. Skillful action is essentially the five precepts, and then um, skillful livelihood. How, how do we use the energy of our life? Not just for work, though it is about work and the teachings, what kind of jobs are, you know, more wholesome than others. In the book, um, we bring in the meditative factors of skillful effort and skillful mindfulness into that. And then realizing the wholeness of the world. This is where we get to learning how to put these shifts into practice, which is really part two and part three. So we want to realize the wholeness of the world by living by the precepts, right? Skillful action, which I have reframed as skillful enactment. Because to me, enactment gives us a sense that it's not just the precepts I have to memorize and, you know, decide whether I'm doing it right or wrong, good or bad, or other people, but it really is, to me, echoes the sense of that. Right? I'm vowing to enact what I hold truth, the values that I hold, right? the precepts. How do I bring those into my life? How do I act on those? You know, recently I had a, I just finished a whole series of the precept studies for eight months. And um, someone I talked to in practice discussion said to me, you know, we just finished, and so they, they get to write their own at the end version, so that's in their own words. By the way, I got that from Vicki Austin, my teacher, so I pass it on to my students. And then I do a little, we have a sample here when I was working it out. I print it out for them, or I put it, lay it out, and I, then I send it to them these days, of course. And um, so, you know, I say other people put them up, so you can look at the precepts all the time. Um, and so this person said they were so bad about something. So, so bad. 
And then they look at their precepts, and their wording was, I'm paraphrasing, like, I vow that when I'm angry, to really examine my anger and find where is their compassion. And so when they looked at that, they just thought, oh, okay, where can I have compassion here for myself and for the person who had it? And they said, that, that made everything. They gave them a, a moment. It's kind of like stopping the mind. It's another version of stopping the mind. Right? From this habitual loop of whose fault is it? Why am I not getting what I need? Or whatever your thing is that makes you angry. Right? It stops you and then it says, oh, re-centers. To, this is my value here. This is where my enactment is. I'm going to enact this by pausing, thinking it through, and recalibrating how I'm going to be in the world and with another. And they said, they said, wow, that was amazing. And I didn't think that it would be such a, a thing, right? Here we go. Impermanent strikes again. So, I'm a little frustrated here, but that's okay. All right. So, and then skillful living. What is the energy we want to put behind it? All right. I am way behind on my stuff, so I'm just going to end. Here we go. Um, I'm going to end actually with a chapter with Dr. Roshi there. And then we'll take some questions. The day after that mind-stopping meeting in Japan, Sakeharada Roshi offered me another chance for a dokusan. I rang the bell, did my vows, and went into the practice discussion room, ready to share my insights about how this answer had affected me. Before I could open my mouth, Roshi launched into a lengthy story of Shakyamunin Shakyamuni Buddha's life and enlightenment, along with the histories of other early Buddhist ancestors. 30 minutes. Hmm? Then once again, he rang me out of the room. We never spoke about my question again. This event impacted me deeply, and I continued to turn it over for many years afterwards. When I remember my dokusans with Sakehara Roshi, this last part has always puzzled me. I often wondered, what was his point about it all? In writing this now, I have an understanding of what he was teaching me. The Buddha and ancestors were searching for the same things as you and me. The end to suffering. I think Roshi was saying that there can't be spiritual bypass. He realized, and after that initial exchange, I too realized that I was looking for a way to explain away the hurt and pain by wanting to discuss it. Discussion isn't wrong. Theory isn't wrong. Activism isn't wrong. But we can't use these things 
for spiritual violence. I should also add Zazenism wrong. We can't use Buddhist practice or any methods such as race theory or activism for Zazen as a way to skip over the human condition inherent in the first noble truth, experiencing the hurts and pains of our lives. Trying to get away from them via any method is to try and skip over or bypass fully experiencing our life as it is. Our practice is to get closer and closer to know it completely. Because in doing so, we can actually then have more clarity on how we can heal. In Pali, the first recorded language of Buddhism, the term Yonasomanasakara is usually translated as wise attention. It can also be translated as attention that takes the whole into account. This is what Seke Harada Roshi was pointing me toward. The practice of investigating dukkha, which sees it in context, in totality, in the whole net, right, not just the jewels, and not just the hurt and pain of the moment. Then, the rest of the engaged Four Noble Truths offers us descriptions and practices for how to connect or reconnect to the wholeness of life. That our existence is seen, relevant, healable, and valued. When we remember and access the contexts that validate us and support us to thrive, not just survive, but to thrive. Additionally, we need to remember that all beings want the same thing, to be free from suffering and the causes of suffering. This is what connects us all. Denying that systems of oppression exist is to deny reality as it is. Learning to negotiate these systems with self and collective determined agency is the practice of engaged liberation. In practicing collective liberation, this is what I wish for us. That we may come home to a sense of wholeness, grounded in what is safe and of value to all. May we then aspire to spread that out, to work together to strengthen safety and care for each other. This is the work and the liberation and understanding, practicing, and developing the engaged renovations. Thank you for your attention. Thank you for listening to this podcast offered by the San Francisco Zen Center. Our Dharma talks are offered at no cost, and this is made possible by the donations we receive. Your financial support helps us to continue to offer the Dharma. For more information, visit sfcc.org and click Giving. May we fully enjoy the Dharma.